Hey, listener, Zach Harper here. Underdog Fantasy, the easiest place to play fantasy sports. Also, fastest growing fantasy app in the industry. Here's how it works. The Pick'em Game. Pick whether your favorite players will have a higher or lower stat total in this week's game for a chance to win big. How big, you ask? I'm so glad you asked that question, listener. You can win up to 100 times your money in a single night. Pick between two and five players. Build a pick'em entry. You can also do rivals picks. You can put like Tyrese Halliburton and Jalen Brunson against each other. And whoever has more points, more assists, more rebounds, whatever you want to do, that is your rivals pick. I would maybe go with Jalen Brunson in these playoffs. By the way, in the regular season, Jalen Brunson scoring tear, going higher on his point totals all the time. Joel Embiid, whenever he did actually play, higher on his scoring totals all the time. Victor Wembanyama for the next 15, 20 years. Here's a pro tip for you. Take higher on the blocks. That's right. So you're probably wondering, how do you sign up? Oh my God, listener, you are full of good questions today. Sign up with the promo code DING, that's D-I-N-G, to claim your special pick First time deposit offer up to $250 in bonus cash. $250, man, that's a lot. Visit underdogfantasy.com or find them in the app store. And don't forget to register with our code DING, D-I-N-G, to claim your special pick and first time deposit offer up to $250 in bonus cash. Must be 18 or older, 21 or older in Massachusetts, Arizona, 19 or older in Alabama and Nebraska, and present in a state where Underdog Fantasy operates. Terms apply. Concerned with your play? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit www.ncpgambling.org. Arizona, 1-800-NEXT-STEP. That's 1-800-639-8783. Or text next step. To five three three four two New York, call the twenty four seven Hope Line at one eight seven seven eight Hope and Y or text Hope and Y four six seven three six nine. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over thirty thousand mouth watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over six hundred dollars each week. You can also save up to one dollar off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the latest Woke Bros. Of course, I'm with my brothers, my fellow comrades, Nando Vila here in Los Angeles, and Michael Jamal Brooks on the planet of Brooklyn. <laughs> Just another day, another Woke Bros. Tomorrow's naked in the background. Don't mind her. This is <laughs> that, that, that thing she's wearing is like a nudish pink color. She's not actually naked, guys. So. She's committed to this. Not a free yeah. show. We had like three runs before. Yeah, yeah, she's, the, she's committed to being she's naked committed. on YouTube. Don't worry. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> trying to get us banned. <laughs> trying to get us banned. But on today's you show. Know what, like, she, she was so much more, you know. She was more tight about you getting drunk at the Michael Brooks show live show than she is about this. That's people are fascinating. Yeah. It's, like everybody's got their different their different spots where they're loose, where they're loosey goosey, where they're tight. I love it. I wish I would have known there was going to be nudity on this show because that way I would have promoted it more aggressively. <laughs> right, exactly. What I would have been like, guys, there's going to be fucking naked people. Yeah, the like, show is going to grow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> on today's show, you know. Jordan gonna, Doc and lingerie. Jordan Doc, lingerie. <laughs> uh, you know, just the politics of athletes, the double standard that black athletes face when it comes to uh, political issues, social justice issues. 
um, what an athlete's role should be. Just you know that that episode, that, those last episodes were very fascinating in how they tackled Jordan and how he handled a lot of that stuff. And when he was at the absolute apex of his career, um, so we're gonna get into that. Of course, it wouldn't be you know a Wednesday afternoon if there wasn't a story about the Dems being in disarray. But what else is new? You know, it's it's sort of like the sun rising in the morning or setting in the evening. The Democratic Party will be a complete and utter rudderless mess. That's going to go without saying. So we're going to touch on that a bit. But first, Mike, Nando, you know, the last episode of The, the Last Dance, or I think it was episode five where they tackled it, they talked about Jordan's sort of, you know, strident apoliticism. Right. And when he was at the apex of his career where he went out of his way to straight up not talk about anything that could, you know, sort of ruffle the feathers of people who we call the mainstream, which is just innuendo for white people. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> that's just that's just what it is. Right. When people say stuff like mainstream or um the, the, the general public or whenever yeah. they're saying stuff like that, we know they're talking about, you know, white breads. Um, Jordan would quite savagely, to be to be quite honest, he he stayed completely away from all of that stuff. And I think what people lose in a lot of this and I want to get your thoughts about the hypocrisy of, you know, nobody ever goes to Larry Bird like, yo, didn't the Ku Klux Klan start in Indiana? What's up with that? Like nobody's ever said that to Larry Bird, right? Like, yo. <laughs> Cops be tripping, Larry. Like, nobody's ever done that. Um, But what I was going to say is that what people don't realize, and I think it's very important, is that during the 1991 season, which was the first championship year for Jordan, which is essentially when he became a made man in the NBA, the basketball world, and was cemented as the guy unequivocally, his salary was $2.5 million. Like... (laughs) That's the, look. That's nothing to sneeze Crazy. at. The, the the three of us, if we woke up with two point five million in our bank this year, would be throwing parties and doing backflips and be very, very, very happy. I would be about really it. concerned about the growth of the Patreon if it did like that. <laughs> <laughs> and you know he, um, which is a nice amount of money. But let's face it, that year I think it was reported that same year he made about twenty two, twenty three million off the court. Right. And how you make yourself appealable on Madison Avenue and, you know, get Wheaties covers and Gatorade commercials and be like Mike is not by being some freedom fighter. Like like literally his financial freedom and security was um, was predicated on being liked by white people. Like it's not like today where somebody like Dame Lillard, who. Makes the all-star team every year as an all-NBA player. Is a great freaking player, right? He's not even the best player at his position one, and nobody would ever make the argument that he's the best player in the league. He's on a six-year deal right now that will pay him $246 million, right? And so it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what he says in public. Like, none of that shit matters. He's completely set for life by just hooping. He has a nice Adidas deal, and I'm sure he does other things that he makes more money on top of that. But just doing NBA stuff, while not being anywhere close to the undisputed king of the NBA, he's on a deal that's going to pay him $250 million. uh, Yeah, a quarter of a billion dollars. A quarter of a billion dollars, okay? And so the space that these guys have to operate, 
um, is just much different than the paradigm that Mike was dealing with. And that's not to make excuses for it, because even after Mike became hyper-secure and became a guy who's making $100 million a year, he, even to this day, he's no, still not somebody who's going out and being, you know, at the front of, you know, police brutality or things of that nature. And, of course, somebody like me as a black man, I would love for Mike to lend his name to important shit. It would mean the world to me, and I know it would mean the world to a lot of black people. But this idea that people, specifically like white dudes, like, bro, go talk to Tom Brady and ask him about the police first. Go ask, go, and and it doesn't even have to be stuff like that. Like, you wouldn't even ask a poor white person to talk about, you know, um, opioid addiction or any of that stuff that goes on in poor white community. You never would do it. So it's this. I want to know what Bill Brady. I want to know what Brady, what Tom Brady has to say about opioid addiction. I would um, love to hear it. It'd be funny. But go ahead, Mike. Please. I know. So you throw. Okay. So we're gonna go to the general population first. <laughs> I'm sorry. Are you stupid? I'm just being stupid. Okay. <laughs> um, I think that uh, look, I, I think everything you said is true and. What also annoyed me as I was watching it was that because I really am, am not into individualizing politics. So I think even when people say, you know, OK, look at LeBron versus uh, Michael Jordan. And look, I, I, I'm happy to stipulate LeBron seems like a nicer person who's more in tune with the well-being of other people. Right. He doesn't you know, he seems like he's got a different uh, personal sort of outlook than Michael Jordan. But there's no question that LeBron, a couple years ago, Nike put out a, a Black Lives Matter themed ad with LeBron. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't explicitly political, but the iconography of it, the visuals of it, the, 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 the spoken word track over it, that's a Black Lives Matter ad. Nike puts out a st statement on its website embracing that movement. Colin Kaepernick, who absolutely paid a huge price in the NFL, and I'll say big market difference, too, between the NFL and the NBA, he gets embraced by Nike. And I'm not saying this to in any way take away from their personal actions, particularly Kaepernick, who absolutely paid a professional cost. But we have to look at the whole landscape as just being completely different in terms of what is and isn't facilitated from brands themselves. In 1990, Nike's saying the fact that we hired Spike Lee and did an ad built around do the right thing, this is as radical and cutting edge and cultural as you're going to get. And so forget talking about campaigning against the segregationist senator like Jesse Helms. And I think so to me, it's let's look at the big picture of where we're actually at in terms of market realities uh, and what kind of facilitate and how that facilitates different behaviors or not versus the individual athlete. And then through that, in a way, it becomes if you have that lens I find as I'm watching this documentary, the constant hyping, like Michael Jordan has a literally impossible task, not just politically. Be like Mike. The anchors will say he is God disguised as a human. 
that his eating at McDonald's or drinking a Gatorade or lacing up Nikes is metaphysical. So they harassed this guy for going to Atlantic City for putting some cash on a golf game that the entitlement over him was bananas. And I actually see and yeah, particularly I mean, it's very easy to character. But of course, you do see the liberal white dudes, you know, with the like, you know, Muhammad Ali said, I'm not going to fight the Viet Cong. Like, okay, you know, why is it that? To me, Michael Jordan is the perfect embodiment of that era's capitalism, including, by the way, what made it appealing. I mean, I say this as a critic. People, I think people critical of these things need to be much more honest about how fucking dynamic and appealing they are. And especially at that time, this guy is still one of the most powerful global brands in the world. And it was because his game was awesome and he had charisma. And if you want to look at the function he served in society in the 90s and critique it, cool. But getting into a morality tale about Michael Jordan personally, I think is embarrassing and I think is, you know, very conservative, actually. Well, the, you, you mentioned like the, the material realities of Jordan's salary vis-a-vis uh, -vis someone like LeBron and and more importantly, the adoption of something like Black Lives Matter as a brand or movement by a company like Nike, one of the biggest multinationals in the world. But when LeBron was asked about the China stuff, Ooh. he didn't speak out. You know, mm -hmm. like he was like he played ball on the China stuff because that there's just a different material reality uh, around the China stuff, and the big companies are not willing are not willing to play that game. You know, like they'll tolerate Black Lives Matter because it, it may not threaten their bottom line in a certain, in, in a, such a direct way. But the China stuff, LeBron was like, no, 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 I'm not going there. I'm, I'm playing ball the China stuff. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. For sure. Sorry. Go ahead. And, and, and the huge potential market, right. For, you know, like Chinese people buy exactly. LeBron jerseys too, you 100%. know, like to, to quote Michael Jordan in a way. Um, Muhammad Ali so was the only one willing to lose a title and money because of a commitment. Well, and, and his, ability to, and that, his ability to compete. His ability to compete, his ability to make a living. And that is both what makes him amazing and exceptional and also why he's a ridiculous metric to compare anybody to because that's saying everybody needs to be basically no, a moral and, leader at that level. And I don't think anybody wants to be held to that standard, frankly. And also, like, let's, let's, let's be clear here, and this is not to belittle – Muhammad Ali's sacrifice in any in any way whatsoever, but like he ain't want to go to war. People died in that war, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. straight up and down. Like that, like the consequences here just don't even freaking compare, right? Like straight up, like I'm not going to go die fighting poor and oppressed people in some country I just I never even heard of until last week. Like that, that like people need to appreciate the. The difference that we're talking yeah, about yeah. here. Yeah, it's not like just speaking out. It's literally like, you know, yeah. No, I mean, it, it is It is also like, you know, Jordan won his first title in 1991 when he, like, as you said, when he became a made, a made man, when he really, truly became that global icon. And I don't think it's a coincidence that it came, um, you know, right at the end of history, as they call it. Like, you know, like the height point of neoliberal era, you know, the, the death of the Soviet Union. The, it's like, it's he is a product of his time and place in, in so many ways. You know, like he, that's that was the epitome of, 
in a way, like a, a certain type of American capitalism and it's like sort of global reach, you know? So, um, he really was like the first global brand athlete, you know, like the Nike deal with Jordan was the first of many that would have then come for other athletes, but he was the first, he was the first one that became a product you know, uh, in, in, in sort of capital, like, you know, Larry Bird wasn't a product. Magic Johnson wasn't a product. Even Muhammad Ali wasn't a product. You know, Michael Jordan was a full on product around the world, you know, and they show in that the converse ad that in the eighties that they're all in. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's just, that's, that, that wasn't, you know, um, Scotty Pippen or whoever, whatever other athletes Nike had in the contract were not in Michael Jordan's uh, freaking Spike Lee commercial. <laughs> okay, yeah. it was Mike because that's. Well, what I'm he- saying that like hokey one before Mike got his contract, yeah. where they show you like where they rap. Those are the these are the monsters like Larry Bird, Magic yeah. Johnson, and uh, you know probably Isaiah. I don't remember it was everybody, Bernard but King, like, I believe. Yeah. yeah, like the best. And it's like, this is a group of guys who are the best and they're going to do a goofy rap about Converse, not this is a template for, you know, and then Agassi gets it to like, these are like the godmen, and we're doing like super, like these sneakers can make you superheroes. And the thing about, and I'm glad you brought up the LeBron thing because that, that, that brings up, you know, something similar to this. In a, a sort of double standard, right? Um, I think what a lot of people didn't realize with LeBron is that one, again, people love to love to not mention this, but he was actually in China <laughs> when they were asking when this shit blew up. True. Like he was actually there after Daryl Morey, a white executive, t- shot off an Aaron tweet that pissed off. His employer's business partners, like straight up and down, like, and uh, I think a lot of people don't realize two things. One, um, the labor dynamics at play here, right? Like, LeBron is just straight up, like, the players are mad, like, yo, this dude is in management, and he straight up cost people money. He took money out of people's pockets, and, you know, all you hear all the time as a player is, you're supposed to be protecting this, you're supposed to be protecting that, you're supposed to be protecting this interest. And the second you, you know, you do something like a DUI or you do whatever, and you get reprimanded for it, it's like, yo, we have a brand, we have a product we're trying to sell collectively, you're taking away from that by fucking up publicly, and you're going to cost people money, and that's sort of the thing. So a lot of it was players being like, yo, fuck this dude. Like, he's in management. He costs people real money. He needs to be dealt with. The second part that I, that I like, love hearing from white, quote-unquote, woke media members is the idea that a black man should put his financial interests at jeopardy in order to defend American democracy? Are you out of your fucking mind, bro? Like, like, just the thought of it. Like, the idea, like, no, you go be the human meat shield sacrifice, black man. For American democracy. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> the ideals of American democracy. Like, people just completely miss that part. It's basically like, yo, LeBron, you lucky to have the money you had. You blessed. God, America's blessed you. Get out there and be a freaking show pony for American values right now because you spoke up when they fucking killed Trayvon Martin for no reason. Like, I, I don't even understand people half the time. He, the, one of the guys who comes off really well in the documentary to me is Phil Jackson. You know, like, I think oh, that oh, uh, God, a, 
a lot, a lot of sports fans in the U S and all over the world, really, um, they don't really like it when the coach like kind of bends to the players or he's like, a, they, they really don't like the players. Especially coach. They like like they're, they're so quick yeah. to turn on the players coach. Right. right. Um, and that's exactly love, like football, right? Yeah. They love like the tyrannical dictator leader guy who puts these guys in line. Cause there's some sort of level of resentment towards the athletes in a weird way 100%. that exists. And they just want someone to just tell them, to tell them what to do, you know? And <laughs> Phil Jackson just like never, he never bends to that, you know, like he never kowtows to that pressure, which is the easiest thing to do as a coach, right? Weirdly, it's the easiest thing to do as a coach. It's much harder to be uh, a guy like Phil Jackson, who like looks at a guy like Rodman and is like, no, you can go to Vegas for a couple of days, you know, or like the Atlantic city thing blows up with Michael and he talks to Michael and he's like, and Mike's like, no, man, I, you know, I just went for a few hours. Like, he's like, okay, yeah, no big deal. Like nothing, you know, like no, like big showy fine or anything like that. But I it, think it plays into that dynamic of that. They want the, they, there's some sort of degree of wanting these players to pay for something or suffer for something, you know, like, um, and, and that's why, like, when you see a guy like Phil, who's so comfortable in his own skin, right. He's like, he comes off as like, he's so com- He doesn't need to show that he's the boss, you know, like he doesn't, he knows, he's fine letting Michael take all the, take all the credit and all that stuff, you know, like it's, it's, it was, it got me thinking a lot about that dynamic about just like this, the, the, the dictator coaches that, that Americans love. And it is interesting. Yeah. And then he's also the one that lets, um, that basically because of that though, Mike gives him just a, a huge amount of deference and they actually let him coach because he isn't doing all of that. And he, and that was, I mean, I read, uh, I think it was sacred hoops or so. I don't know. Some like nineties Phil Jackson book. And it's good. It's a good book. Like it's fun to read. And just, there's little things in it. Like, Phil's kind of, you know, he's not into packing guns, but also a lot of the guys on the team have stalkers and are freaked out. And it's just, you just wreck, you just recognize in all these little ways that I think that was the book I read it years ago, but he just had an open dialogue with them. Yeah. And I think you're, and, and it's so funny because it seems so simple, but, and also the other stuff too, I, like I want to emphasize for people maybe because it, you know, it speaks to the hippie and me, but now everybody knows like, oh yeah, like help athletes. And, you know, everybody's got a whole, like, you know, everybody's trying to meditate or do yoga or whatever. When he did that in the nineties, that was still weird. Like that really was weird. still like actually a challenge. Like this idea that the best basketball team in the history of the planet as part of toughening up and dealing with the Knicks and dealing with whoever is, you know, we're going to learn how to de- how to breathe. Um, I thought the dynamic with Dennis Rodman was cool. And I also thought through that, it also showed you th- this does a really good job in not showing like it isn't like, no, Michael's secretly a really nice guy. It's just what you'd expect that. No, Michael, like everybody else, is a very com- he more complicated than most because he's more talented than most. But. You have moments where you're like, wow, Mike's an asshole. And then you have other moments where you're like, his level of tolerance and patience, even around Rodman, <laughs> it's amazing. Like, that's not a tyrant of your teammates at all. That's like, this guy is going and being ridiculous, like in the middle of a season. But hey, we understand. We get that he's got a little bit of a different uh, flow to him. I, actually, I thought parts like that were very beautiful. And, I, and that does come from Phil, for sure. 
Yeah, and and I mentioned this that 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 was one of my very early takeaways from the doc is just like listening to Phil Jackson explain his philosophies as far as like leading the team and basically having this completely humanist approach to you know managing the personalities of these players that he's going to be spending all this time with. It's like, yo, I'm individualizing my approach to everybody. Like Nando said, like, this isn't some one-size-fits-all operation here. It's like I'm custom-fitting my approach to each and every person's needs. Like, that is incredible to me. And you know what's so ill, too, is that it's sitting side-by-side with Mike's approach, which is obviously the complete opposite, where he's just like yelling at Will Perdue and Bill Wennington and, you know, um, making fun of Horace Grant for passing up open looks. And he's just this ruthless guy. And I think, you know, a lot of that stuff just gets on my nerves. I always feel weird when like sports sports um, media types refer to another dude as an alpha. It's just like, it's awkward. <laughs> it's just awkward. Like, what, why are you calling another man an alpha like it's just this weird thing where like no mike is great because he's an asshole it's like well i mean did tim duncan have to do that he won five championships his teammates seemed to love him people loved working with him he didn't need to do that people a lot of times conflated um mike's like um personality quirks with the reason why he was a winner no he worked his ass off was really talented um you know, and, and made shit happen. It's not just because he was some really hard-driving guy who was a dick to everybody and blah, 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 blah. Like, it's so, you know, so ridiculous at times the way... Well, people love that Michael Jordan, Steve Jobs, like, this gives me all the permission in the world to be a fucking dick. And I almost certainly <laughs> don't have any type of creativity or talent. But, right. but what did you guys think about... Um, Cause I don't know the like Waz, you might be best positioned on this. Like I know they're hinting at it and they'll unwind it, but can you give us a hint as to what the all like what was the extent of the beefs with the front office? And how could the owner of the Bulls like I get that there's a little guy that Mike is mean to, and I'm sure that Phil Jackson and he bumped heads, and I get that he didn't get his credit and he was disrespected, but he was also clearly an incredibly insecure lunatic. How does the fucking owner of a team like that let some guy in the front office dictate that the best coach in the game, maybe in history at that time, he's just like, this is definitely his last year. Like the whole time I'm watching the documentary, I mean, obviously it can't last forever, but you're watching it and you're like, there isn't a couple of calls to be made here that get Scotty another 20 mil just to make him happy. That doesn't even do anything for else for Jordan. It just keeps him with Phil. And then, oh, it rem- actually, because Entourage is on my mind. It reminds me of that scene in Entourage where it's like they don't want to do some movie. They finally agree to it. And Ari's like, OK, I'll have the studio cut you a three million dollar check. How horrible. Like, Phil Jackson will come back and you'll win another championship. How horrible. Like, why? Okay, so I think a a lot of times, especially with these owners, like, Jerry Krause could be his meat shield. Like, Jerry Krause could take all of the hits. Like, that's the role that he serves for Reinsdorf. So that's the trade-off that he's taking. He's like, 
I don't get, I never get killed in public. I don't have to be the bad guy when it comes to negotiations with Phil or Scotty and all of these things. Everything gets blamed on this guy. And he's right. willing to take it on the chin for me. And so that's Absolutely. the but why? I, I don't know. I, I, mean, I, I don't like, know. And, like, that's that's what owners like. They love it. Like, you see it even with Dolan. And ironically, um, it happened when um, he gives Phil Jackson a job, overpays him for a job that he absolutely didn't want. Didn't They begged this guy to take the job. He's like, no, nah, I don't want to do it. I've never did it for an office shit. I don't want to do it. I will give you $60 million. All right. I mean, at this point, yeah. I have <laughs> to take this freaking job. And he was bad at it, right? Because, again... This is not something he ever wanted to do, but they offered him all this money, so he took it. And, you know, Dolan goes on Michael K's radio show, and he's like, what the hell do people want from me? I hired Phil freaking Jackson. <laughs> 11 championships. I did that. What, like, and people are still coming at me. Like, that's how these owners' psyches work. Like, they no, don't I get, I get all that, but I'm saying it's, it's a win. Like, I don't, was, I just can't, like... This is the best team in well, history. Okay, so but what's for Kraus, the rush to break the, it up? Okay, but it's the Kraus. That's see, that's where the Kraus element comes in. Yeah, what's he that about? Did not draft Michael Jordan. Yeah, Jordan's not his guy, so he doesn't no. see these victories as his own victories. It's an ego thing. It's like he's eager to start another thing that he can take full credit for. There's that. There's that scene. They show after I think it was the second championship um, against Portland where. Jerry Krause is like, man, what a great organization. I mean, the, the front <laughs> office staff, ownership, really a top-notch organization. And, and, you know, the guys are great, too. The players are, yeah. But the organization, oh, my goodness, what a great organization. Team is good. And it's, Best organization But I the ever organization, seen. I mean, Yo, Jerry. With that line, Michael Jordan earned himself, like, 30 short jokes in my book. I mean, yeah. it's When just, he popped his first one, I was like, that's kind of mean. And then after I heard that, I was like, the level of insecurity in this one man is is incredible. And that's what it is, Mike. It's like this guy, Phil's getting so all the credit managerially. How does the owner let that happen? Like I said, like to, to the owner, the trade-off is worth it. He's a good meat shield. not say, okay, I can get another meat shield, but I can't get another Phil Jackson or another he, Michael they, Jordan. He doesn't get that. He doesn't for wow. whatever reason. And, wow. and you got to understand, there's always, there's, when it comes to, a general manager and the owner, there's this sort of symbiotic relationship. Whereas with your coach is kind of adversarial. He's right. kind of seen as like the mid-manage, like your coach is not mid-management, mid-level management. He's um he's part of something different. He's not a player, right. but he's definitely not part of mid-level management because again, he's hired by the GM. And by the way, Phil Jackson got paid more than Jerry Krause. So there's all of these things, these, these sort of ego dynamics at play here that again, I have the same feeling as you, Michael. When I'm watching this, I'm like, why would I break up a team that has Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, and Phil Jackson on it after a third consecutive finals? Like, and the, and the proof is in the pudding, by the way. Um, They've Mike, never done anything they since. Never, they never built. Kraus never built another winner ever. No. And the other thing too that Kraus. The other thing too that Kraus sold. Sorry to interrupt. Was Kukoc, right? Tony Kukoc was supposed to be the guy that was going to take the <laughs> yeah. reins. He was going to lead the Bulls to the promised land. Ron Artest was just on tampering. You know, shout out to the Athletic. Ron Artest said that Jerry Kraus told him that him and Kukoc are going to lead the Bulls to Title Seven. It's going to be better than the first six. <laughs> that was Kraus. No, and the thing about the thing about owners <laughs> is that they're owners. 
Like they, you know, like they see it as their thing. Like they own this thing. And when a player gets, especially back then, like there's been a lot of change, I think in the dynamic of how players have asserted their power. And I think people are becoming more comfortable with that by, because they're they have to, but Back then, that was not the case. Like, you don't, you don't see the kind of things that you see now with, like, LeBron and all these guys where they basically, like, do whatever the fuck they want, you know? Like, back then, that was not like that at all. Like, they, as soon as a player got too big for anyone, they didn't like if, as, as long as they played ball and, like, respected the owner and all that stuff, like, that's fine. But, like, if they were starting to question decisions or whatever, like, that was a huge thing back then. No, so, I get, like, I probably get a all of a feeling of that. That like you know these these guys are they think they're like you know fucking Scotty Pippen's gonna hold out on well, him I understand. two I mean, months. I I get how Scotty got into trouble because I mean <laughs> look I understand that but I I guess what I'm saying is like from a, from my rash I egos use well, and, the little man as a buffer but there is one part that as an owner you think to yourself. I'm winning. Yeah. <laughs> like, like that. that is I've seen it. I've like, seen it. Yes, I've seen it happen so wild. many times. Though. I've wild. seen it happen so many times, and it, and it happens a lot with player coaches. Like, the, 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 they they annoy owners. They they hate when like, you know, the the owners hate it when their players do something bad, and the coach doesn't reprimand them. They just hate that. It's like so a, they're basically just they're just like the rich version of the same bloated people watching at home then. Yeah, but, of course. Yeah, I mean, I know, like their fans I know. got rich and now they have a plaything. I mean, of course, but still, like, well, yeah, and also, just, there's a degree. There was a degree to, of inevitability with the Bulls in the '90s that, like, you know, they, once they won the first one, they won every single one except for the two years that Michael was was playing baseball. But so there was like a degree, like of of you know, this is just the way it is. Like we win, you know, I don't know. Like I remember I that feeling it. as a fan. Yeah, yeah. I remember that yeah. feeling as a fan where there was such an inevitability that they were going to win. Like there was no question that they were going to win. Um, and then you just get used to that. And then you don't realize that, yo, this shit like doesn't last forever. It's fragile. Everything is fragile when you're in the people business, right? Like you can't predict, you can't predict that, you know, in 1989, I think Phil got, got hired. Um, that eventually one day Jerry Krause is going to resent him for doing the very thing that he got hired for, which right. is to win them a championship. Like, it, you can't predict these stuff, these these things, excuse me, um, before they happen. And I think that's why people are fascinated by sports. I know I'm not breaking new ground here, but I think it's, a lot of it is the human intrigue, the just the just drama of it all, which this, this series is doing a fantastic job of, like, explaining to you the the craziness happening behind the scene of one of the most famous American sports teams in the history of American sports. Anyway, we, we move on. I'm ashamed, I gotta just say, I'm ashamed at how much I like the Pistons. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> just you know, down to the fact they're having a bit of a resurgent moment. Looking right? like a Gambino associate. They're just out injuring people. Yeah. They remind me of a uh, was a, uh, Cheney for Temple, man. John Cheney. Oh, I love just, John Cheney. Love the John Cheney. He's not even. I mean, look, Temple's a good team, but that's not an NCAA winner. And he's just like, yeah, I don't like that kid. Go out there, break his fucking ankle. I sent the goon on him. He literally used the word goon. I sent the goon on him. Yeah, he's a, he, John Cheney's a legend. Missed that John guy. Cheney's, um, I love, remember that press conference where he tore where Calipari. The dynamic between him and Calipari. I won't get fantastic. too into tangents, but. 
when I was a little kid, I mean, UMass was an amazing team and that rivalry was very serious. Yeah. And, and Calipari was like, you know, he was kind of like, you could tell he was slick, but kind of yeah. full of shit. And Cheney was for better and for worse, hard on your sleeve, completely upfront guy. And there was this press conference one time where Calipari, you know, he's just, you know, he's in there. He's just like, yeah, I don't know. You know, we, we got a good organization. We work with the other team, blah, blah. And Shady just comes in the middle of, breaks up in the back room. He's like, you're full of fucking shit. You're fucking tired. <laughs> and Calipari's just like, oh, whoa. Like, whoa, hey, <laughs> easy, cuzzo. Hey, easy guy. <laughs> you just knew, though, like, John Shady's telling the truth. But anyway. Um, okay, so, you know, again, it wouldn't be a Woke Bros if we didn't talk about the Dems and their disarray. I know Mike is more annoyed by people who are annoyed by the Biden situation, which I think is like, it's funny. It, it, this is just classic, classic Democratic Party, liberal establishment, um, self-harm that's so easily predicted. Um, I that's remember... Me. You should not be surprised... By anything this. None that of this. these people do. Like, I see people go, I can't believe Elizabeth Warren would do that. Stop. By the way, Please. I remember, and I think Warren was behind, was one of the people telling Al Franken to quit, too. Um, and listen. 100%. Al, I remember at the time when Al Franken, when, when that whole thing blew up about, by the way, I'm not trying to trivialize this woman's accusations of him, but this is like during the comedy tour that they're on, and it's like, what are we doing here? Okay, cool. But at the time, anybody with half a freaking brain, and we don't have to pretend like we're all Nostradamus and have foresight, but it's like, guys, if you're holding people to this standard, there is going to be a time where somebody you like, Elizabeth Warren, yeah. and all these other people who were doing it, is going to be held to this standard. This, like, you're barking, like, who needs this? Who wants this? In a state like Minnesota that isn't exactly like some type of liberal bastion where he's really popular, I'm like, I'm so, like, this is politics, guys. Like, what they, what they were doing was bad politics. Like, you could moralize and be like, well, this is, you know, that's bad morals. And shut up, dude. Like, Al Franken should have never freaking quit. That was ridiculous. That was dumb. And now... You paint yourself into this corner where you have to where you have to now defend the actions of Joe Biden publicly. And again, I don't think Joe Biden should drop out the race because of this. I don't. And, I, and I'm speaking to somebody who probably hates Joe Biden more than everybody on this call, right? Like I, I, I don't know about that. I literally yeah. hate. There's the a guy. lot of hate. There's a lot of hate here. There's a lot of hate. <laughs> and but it's just like this doesn't. This is not cutting mustard. But again. The establishment just looks so nasty and discombobulated and just so sloppy in how they're handling this that people can't no help but notice the seams, man. Like, like, you're, like they're falling apart, Michael. Yeah, they're definitely falling apart. But I think like this was and actually Ryan Grimm pointed this out. We, we had Anna and I had him on the Jacobin show where he's like part of the problem is that there was never a discourse that went in conjunction with this with the idea of people having sincere apologies, people changing, also making obvious distinctions. I mean, honest, you know, ironically, and of course it makes sense that after the Democratic establishment uses this kind of rhetoric to try to destroy Bernie Sanders over a conversation that I have no doubt never happens, <laughs> they will actually defend 
and 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 look the other way on something that is like actually really serious, right? And so if you don't make distinctions between either, you know, a thing that is a mistake and can be rectified, a thing that is context dependent and social mores have changed and also have a roadmap for people to to shift, then it becomes like a zero sum political instrument. But I will say that people who had you know, more uh, critical perspectives on this, like Heidi Matthews, she said this out of the gate. Like she knew exactly how this was going to be deployed politically. And I would just say, like, I would, I would hope that, that on one hand, people would use this to have much more thoughtful, nuanced conversations about the topic in general, but then also see that when it comes to the democratic establishment to keep talking about, like, why aren't they, why aren't they doing like, these are the same people, sometimes actually the same people who did like the nuts and sluts strategy with Bill Clinton. Like yeah. this is politics and that's how they, and, and I feel like, again, it's like what I'm always banging on about. Can the left on one hand get way less puritanical, more humane and take seriously the ideas of restorative justice and so on. And then on the other hand, become a hell of a lot more cynical and Machiavellian because just as like a mat, like, look, this is an important story and it's, I'm very glad that she's telling it and it's being reported, but like, this is not going to get Joe Biden out of the race. It's not going to have any significant electoral impact. I don't and care. I mean, that's it, that's it another won't. thing. I don't think it people won't. care. It won't. <laughs> they, they, don't. they don't. And the thing is, is that instead of banging on about, like, why isn't Elizabeth Warren doing X or why isn't da-da-da-da-da, why don't you realize that this was instrumentalized in politics from the beginning and this is exactly what they would do. And I would say, incidentally, like, you know, look, there's a lot of things that I mean, we're our, we're saying that, like, what we know that doesn't need to be reported at all is that Joe Biden was a point person for invading Iraq. That makes him an accessory to the deaths of millions of people. So, yeah, people are going to make a lot of calculations about a lot of things. There was an uh, there was an article in Politico. I think it was today. It was either today or yesterday that talked about kind of Joe Biden's brain trust and his inner circle, uh, his basically his team, um, and they're just like they couldn't be like bigger fossils of like a different era. You know, it seems like, and yet somehow he's the Democratic nominee and um, he's got a decent shot to win. You know, we, I don't think it's by any means a foregone conclusion that he's either going to win or lose. Like it's, he's definitely got a decent shot. Um, And it's just, it's just amazing to see how much, how it just feels like to me, like the end of a political era that started more or less five or six years ago, um, that was very dominated by activisty sounding language deployed cynically, um, to enforce and reinforce a status quo, but that actually a lot of people kind of bought into semi genuinely. It's, I think that's true. Like at the top it was deployed cynically, but there was definitely a lot of people kind of out and about in media and stuff that kind of adopted that frame of thinking very earnestly. And this is just like, that shit's over. Like that shit is over with Biden. Like he doesn't have time for any of that shit. Like they, they don't, they don't even realize it's going on. It's like, it might as well be a different universe. And it's, it just like, and especially with it's, I mean, that was true before this terror read accusation, but now with this terror read accusation, which is just so bl- like, they're just so blatant in just 
completely reversing course on the last whatever it is three or four years of of the discourse that it it like no one will be able to take like i don't see how anyone will be able to take this this kind of thing seriously but you got to invent a better discourse and something that's much more sophisticated not just point right and i feel like what and i think the thing that you know what concerns me is when people point at people who are never and should never have been expected to take to be like coherent about any. I mean, dude, we, we had, you know, Hillary Clinton deploying this kind of rhetoric. Her yeah. husband is on what is intersectionality? Jeffrey, yeah. What does intersectionality mean to you in three emojis as the greatest Hillary Clinton? It's like, and it's like, again, on one hand, it's like the a broader critique that people like Heidi Matthews put forward, which was important. And then it was also just like, get real about the politics of this man. Yeah. yeah, I just want to say one last thing. Um, obviously, we don't agree with right wingers on much, but they do get one particular thing right, and that's that Democrats are full of shit. <laughs> like <laughs> yeah. th- that is the one thing the one they thing completely they understand. They see through all of these people. They're like. Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi, y'all supposed to be some party of the little guy and y'all love working people. You're full of shit. They completely <laughs> get it. They're completely right. Um, that's the only thing I will say right wingers, they they have clarity on like, I, I, I may not know a bunch of things, but they're like, yo, that person I'm watching right there, full of it. It's, it's just <laughs> a lying sack of shit. Um, and that's all I'll say for that. Um, do you guys have anything else to add here? No, I got to duck out. Mike, you want to plug cool. some stuff really quickly? I know you got Jacobin on the weekend. Lots of cool stuff with yeah, TMBS. Yeah, Jacobin show with Anna Kasparian. Check it out. We're live Saturdays, 1 o'clock New York City time. Uh, you can also, of course, go uh, and go to patreon.com slash TMBS. We're also doing a ton. We're doing a TMBS Sunday Economics Series and a bunch more coverage of China, all sorts of shit. Come check it out. It's a good show. And these guys, and matter of fact, I think we're going to do like a crossover show with both of you guys on soon, which I'd like very much. Please, that'll be fantastic. All right, perfect. All I got is all I got is a stupid entourage pod that both of you guys were guests Fantastic. on. Fantastic, that's a great that pod. That was so awesome. Only, Just... and I'm rewatching that whole show. <laughs> Thanks to me. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. All right, all right, talk to you guys later. Thanks to you guys for watching. Um, make sure you check out the mailbag, uh, bomb episodes, um, everything, man. Check out the whole Count the Dicks feed. Become a Patreon. Talk to you guys later. We're out of here. Thanks, guys. Right. Bye.